0: Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Sam Peltzman, the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Graduate School of Business. He's one of the most creative economists of our time, known for his careful empirical studies of the actual impact of regulation. He's also a pretty good basketball player. Sam, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Uh, thank you, but my basketball career ended when my knees blew out a few years ago.
0: Uh, it happens to the best of us. Uh, <laughs> mine ended when I didn't get any taller than five foot, to six and a half. But, uh, uh, Sam, I want to talk about the research you've done, in particular in the area of regulation. And I want to talk to start with on the issue of automobile safety. You wrote an incredibly influential piece back that uh, was published in 1975 in the Journal of Political Economy, The Effects of Automobile Safety Regulation, that made an enormous splash in the uh, academic and real world because of the claims that it made uh, about the effects of safety regulation. Tell us what you found.
1: Well, uh, you, you have to distinguish what I found then uh, from the idea that came out of that piece, and which is, I think, given it Actually, a durability that amazes me. Uh, every week I get stuff in, in, the, in my email about another application of the basic idea. The basic idea, well, first of all, let's back up. The, the piece was a, was really evaluating the first wave of uh, safety regulation that was then about 10 years old. And, and this was the requirement that we have seat belts and, and uh, collapsible steering columns a lot of things added since then but that was the first wave that came after uh, maybe some of your your older listeners will remember the Nader book uh, Unsafe at Any Speed which touched off a political uh, 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 movement for more safety regulation which culminated in what we have today which is basically a federal government which regulates the design of cars so I was evaluating the first 10 years and uh, my findings finding that I think it kind of uh, wrinkled eyebrows or got caused some surprise was that there seemed to be no effect on the number of uh, fatalities on the highway. Uh, so that was the that was the result. Uh, I also found that uh, while it was true that people in cars uh, suffered less fatalities, uh, non occupants. Pedestrians, bicyclists, people on uh, motorcycles, and, and, in fact, people in other cars, uh, they were—they were, they, they suffered an increase, actually an increase in, in deaths over this period. So the, I, I was scratching my head what, what could have caused this. Uh, and what, what I came up with was basically an application of very simple economic logic, which was what, what these devices did was reduce the... What you might think of as the price of having an accident, the 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 cost that was borne by the the person who was driving the car, if if there was an accident, you know, none of these things none of these things really affected directly the likelihood of having an accident. What they did was to to kind of give you a signal, which is if you get into an accident, you're going to be safer. All right, so that's like a price reduction. It's like saying if you do something that gets you into an accident, the consequences, what you're going to have to pay out is, uh, what you're going to have to give up is less. So, so, so uh, uh, light goes off. Well, basic economics suggests that if the the price of something goes down, people will do more of it. it will buy more of it. So, so my story was that the price of an accident had gone down. People compensated by taking more risks, which have a benefit. You go faster, you get where well, you're going faster, you go, you go, you take shortcuts and so on and so forth. It has a benefit to you. It also has a cost of, uh, raising the risk of, of, of getting into an accident and then getting hurt or having your car damaged. But that second thing had gone; had been reduced. The, the consequences had been reduced, so people took more risks. And what you're going to get is is uh, uh, a disproportionate share of those risks would be borne by non-occupants in this particular in, in this particular case. Although uh, you you could also, have, you know, the the theory is, uh, that we have is so flexible in these matters that it, 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 it's not even clear that the people inside the car would be. Protect it in terms of total uh, accident damage that they that they would uh, gain in that score. They would gain in getting where they're going faster if there wasn't an accident, which is ninety nine point nine nine percent of the cases. They gain in in in, in uh, uh, time and speed and all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but but anyway, my finding was that the way it worked out was there was no net effect. All right, but uh, you can see the idea that comes from the theory is not that there won't be any net effect, but that there will be a compensating, uh, there will be an offset to the what, what was driving the regulators, which was just to reduce accidents, so that uh, 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 the 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 life saving and the accident re- re- the the uh, the accidental damage reducing potential. Of the regulation would in part be offset by the way people reacted to it. That was the idea that came out of the piece.
0: And what were what were some of the reactions when that when you published well, that? They, they,
1: they, people loved the, it. The, the it, reactions. Some of the reactions were uh, to use a better uh, word: violent. Mm-hmm. The editor of the Journal of Law of, of, of Political Economy, where this piece appeared, uh, was. Uh, uh, Threaten browbeat to, to not to publish the thing because if he published the thing it would justify uh uh public policies which would kill babies uh, the, the editor was very courageous and said, "Thanks, but we're going to publish this on schedule and uh you can reply and all of that. So there, there was a very, very uh, substantial negative reaction from from what you might call the safety community, which, which because there was ten years of regulation under their belt, had been heavily subsidized by the government, had a lot of influence in, in not only in Washington but in Detroit. Uh, 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 in, in the, in the uh, automobile industry which had adapted to all of this and they didn't want that rocked, and they had a very, very strong stake in a view of the world which didn't allow much room for human behavior as a response to these things. They wanted the world to think that if you crash a dummy into a wall and in a in, uh, uh, the vast majority of the cases the dummy comes out with with you know with a with a, the electronic signals indicating that it that it would have survived had it been a human being. That's the end of the story that justifies the regulation. forget all the rest and and they viewed it as a threat uh but uh you know, we're here today and we're talking about this, so the, the, lat, the, the subsequent 30 years, it's over 30 years now, uh, the subsequent 30 years uh, uh, have, have uh, kind of given it a durability which uh, those folks', <laughs> those folks in, in, intention of, of not seeing has been frustrated.
0: And over the <clears throat> over those thirty years, uh, though there've been a lo- there've been a lot of papers written on this uh, yes, on both uh, sides.
1: Yes, uh, and I think that's why we're here today. We're not here today because I wrote something thirty years ago. I I don't think. What do you mean? Well, I think that that uh, it, it, it kind of surprised me, that, but it's been a very durable area of research uh, it, it, in a sense. A lot of people followed up. They did their own application different countries, different kinds of regulations, Uh, you know, the regulations evolved, so you had the new ones coming along, uh, uh, and then the idea got applied outside, just automobile regulation, I mean, it's a very general point, that if you try to regulate human behavior, you, 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 you change incentives, and the general point that comes out of that is that often the incentives are changed in a way which offsets end of the regulation. So you've had, you've had uh, a, a stream of research which picks up that idea but applies it outside of the area of safety regulation. But just in the area of safety regulation, it's, it's astounding to me how many times uh, this idea has been applied. And, and I'll tell you, the, the general result that comes out of 30 years of work, and, and literally I mean, there's something new every week, I mean, uh, I, I regret uh, that i didn 't s- start making a catalog back then because I get a, somebody will send me uh you know sort of the latest iteration because they think of me as kind of the first one to have gone into this area uh, uh but I regret i i haven 't catalogued all of this it 's an astounding number
0: well if you uh, go to if you go to jstor and you search uh sam peltzman you you will find or automobile safety you'll find an enormous set of papers pulled up from that search engine that that do chronicle um the 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 breadth of areas that this has been applied to and as you say not just automobile safety not just airbags or mandatory helmet laws but lots of regulatory areas outside of safety yes yes
1: so so i mean i'm happy with that i'm happy that people take it seriously enough uh, to apply
0: that's very gratifying let me let me say something um, less gratifying, which is, as economists, we often find these kind of effects very intuitive. Uh, non-economists find them a little bit bewildering. They say things like, well, do you think people really take these lower costs into account? And usually yeah. our answer is, well, let's see. Let's look. And you went and looked, and you found that they did. Right. But that that fact, that unintended consequence of these kind of laws... Uh, often doesn't penetrate to the consciousness of voters and certainly not to the incentives that face regulators. So do you think there's been, outside the academic literature and the delight that economists get in studying unintended consequences, do you think it's had any impact on regulation?
1: Well, I I, uh, I, I thought you were going in a different direction. First of all, uh, I thought you were going to talk about the impact on other fields.
0: Well, let's hear that too.
1: Well, uh, let me start there, because I don't think it's, it's quite accurate to say that this is exclusively something that economists uh, 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 will will uh, be sympathetic or empathetic with. Uh, of course, it's true that that it's the guts of economics. So so naturally, economists tend to to be the first ones who who, who take it seriously. But but uh, uh, psychologists, it turns out, there's a branch of psychology to which this is quite. Uh, uh, With which this is quite uh, compatible, and some of the literature uh, actually started. It started before my piece in in the mid seventies. Some of the psychological literature was going down the same track, and and that uh, you know they deal with incentives and, and and of course, with human behavior. So uh, they're not unsympathetic, but but it's it's true that if you go if you go beyond academic uh, areas. That take incentives seriously, uh, and and that understand that they can be generalized beyond, you know, sort of money in the case of economics or whatever it is that uh, is central to psychology. uh, You 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 get a you get less of a less of a friendly reaction, but also more indifference or, or more disbelief, as you put it, people. Affected regulation? I don't know that it has. I mean, you still obviously you still have a, a uh, healthy regulatory enterprise, but nothing nothing in my uh, research or the subsequent research suggests that the regulation per se is bad or, or or is going down the wrong track. It just says you shouldn't overestimate its its uh, its potential. And I don't know what you do with that if you're a regulator. Of course, you resist it because yeah. it, it, it it does say that some some of what you're doing isn't working out the way you're trying to, to, uh, uh, to sell it.
0: I think it gives okay. them a few sleepless nights, probably. Yeah, and that's, that's about it. it.
1: But, 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 but I don't know what you do with it if you're a regulator. Look, I will say this: the 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 the, the, the general electorate's faith. That you can easily manipulate human behavior by regulation, I think it's been reduced over time. Yes. I so in that sense, in that sense, findings like this are kind of part of the dripping and dropping that goes on to shape that uh, th- that view. Yeah,
0: I, I, agree. I, I think there's
1: been a generational. If if you take the generation uh, that 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 is kind of voting today, we're just one day after an election. If, people don't realize that, the uh, the skepticism about uh, the effects of government regulation is much greater than than when I was uh, starting out in my career, uh, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, certainly.
0: And as you say, surely some of that is is, uh, the result of of the chronicling that our profession has done of, of those impacts.
1: Uh, yes, it's a, certainly within the profession. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, Russell, and, and when I got into this profession, the the degree of faith and in in, in, in in support for government regulation was much greater than it is today. That that's basically because people weren't looking. Yeah. Well, once they started looking, I mean, the economics is, as a field is a nice place to work because. You're surrounded by colleagues who will look at evidence and, and will draw conclusions from evidence, whatever their personal beliefs might might uh, be. And, and and that the evidence changed a lot of uh, a
0: lot of. I think uh, that's true. I'd like you to contrast uh, the demand for safety that comes from, say, changes in income with safety changes that come from regulation. Right. You're, you're the, the the results that you're talking about. Uh, are the results of imposed regulation as opposed to the natural uh, demand for safety that we have as we get wealthier? As we get wealthier, presumably people want safer cars because they want they want more safety, right. which is different than the case of the government making cars safer than we'd rather have them be. Is right. that correct?
1: Yes, uh, that's another area where 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 economists tend to differ from the rest of the population. What you just stated was, let's look at the world without regulation and contrast that to a world with regulation. And and, and you quite rightly point out that in a world without regulation, as people uh, get gradually uh, uh, wealthier, they'll demand more regulation, and over time, cars will be safer. And indeed, if you stop the world at whatever it was that Nader wrote his book, and you look back... That's what you saw you saw a gradual improvement in safety over the period of the uh you know the advent from the advent of the model T or whenever you know cars became a mass market uh uh kind of thing uh that was in the twenties from the twenties to the early sixties or whenever you want to stop it you see a gradual decline and uh so, so, so an economist looking at that says, "Okay, well, that's perfectly understandable. Uh, people are getting wealthier, and they're demanding more safety. And people includes the government. I mean, I don't want to keep the government out of this. The government is doing things here and there that may may make contributes to that.
0: Sure.
1: So, there's a gradual process that unfolds. Now, what we So so methodologically, what was I doing when I was studying automobile safety regulation? I wasn't just looking at, did deaths decline or not? The question is, what would the world likely have been like without the regulation? And the answer is, there would have been a decline, because that's the way people behave. Without government pushing them, they do things that make things safer. Uh, you have to compare that to what actually happened, all right, and the comparison shows there was there was little or no effect in that particular application so uh, part of the reason why you're getting uh, what looks like offsetting behavior I think maybe even most of the reason is uh, not the direct behavioral response that's kind of so so uh, intuitively appealing to economists the, the what you might call the price effect, that, that the, the price effect, that the price of accidents has, has gone down, but this other, this wealth effect, which is that over any extended periods, uh, without the regulatory intervention, people would have done things that would have made cars safer. So if you look at a car today; it's got seat belts and it's got a lot of things that that initially were required by regulation, but quite plausibly would have been there today not in 1920 but today when uh uh when uh, uh, uh people are are wealthier when i first uh, talked to people in the auto industry about this piece the ones who weren't hostile there were plenty of those the ones who weren't hostile and were more reflective about the history of their industry uh pointed out to me that there were uh market-led innovations of a very minor what looked like very minor, but which their people understood had huge impacts on safety. So things like a rear view mirror mounted on the uh, outside of the car, mm-hmm. looking back. That that didn't—that wasn't standard equipment in the 20s and the 30s. But when it came in, uh, it had a big effect on safety. Uh, turn sig- Automatic canceling turn signals. That looks minor, and it was. Even in its own day, not a great innovation but uh, 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 your grandfather gave hands hand turn signals, and it was a big bother and in the winter he 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 didn 't roll the window down to stick his hands out uh, That was a big safety innovation so 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 these kind of uh, low, uh, small market responses contributed the fact that from the dawn of the automobile civilization to the advent of regulation, you had a process of gradually increasing safety. And that's true not just in automobiles, but in all aspects
0: of life. You know, we ought to mention is before we leave this subject that there's this, these unintended consequences that we're talking about are behavioral. There are other kinds of unintended consequences in this area, You know, airbags. Which killed um, short, small people in the passenger seat. uh, That's that's a different kind of unintended consequence that actually might have, because of the incentive effects, gotten people to drive more safely uh, if they're worried about getting, uh, you know, killing their kid. God forbid, sitting in the passenger seat. Yes. So one of, you know, one of the things that is to put kids in the back seat, but I, my understanding is is that there were pe- people who died because of the explosive nature of airbags. Well yes. intended though they might have been, ended up doing some, bad, some very bad things.
1: Yes, uh, there have been a few of those. Uh, anti-lock brakes have the same. Uh, there was there was a rather steep learning curve, right. and, and uh, uh, one of the one of the academic studies that that we talked about before was was a study of anti-lock brakes, which actually indicates that they they were, at least over the initial period, counterproductive. It led to an increase in... in,
0: in Well, you you mentioned earlier you weren't sure what the uh, implications were for regulators. Obviously, regulators don't have precise information about these trade-offs. but I think it's an important... If there are any regulators listening to this, I'd encourage them to uh, be aware of the possibility of offsetting behavior.
1: Well, in that case, in the case you mentioned, they did react...
0: Yes, they did. They changed. Uh, yeah, they basically made it illegal to put your kid in the front seat. That's what. That's the first thing. Well, I think but they, they do now
1: have. Well, they changed. What, see, one of one of the one of the bad effects of regulation, I think. You know, I, you can you can characterize it that way. Although I, I was reluctant before, but one of the bad effects is that you you inevitably are going to make not a, well every everybody makes mistakes. You're going to make mistakes, but they're going to be on a grand scale. So you wish you regulation. Every car's got to have airbags uh, instead of a market process, which would have uh, limited this maybe to a few leading-edge models, and then you would have found out there was a problem, and then you might have pulled back and you might have gone forward. In the case of regulation, of course, it becomes a blanket thing very quickly, and then you pull back, uh, but uh, the test is very
0: costly. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. Uh, Let's move on to another um, path-breaking paper of yours, uh, an evaluation of consumer protection legislation, the 1962 drug amendments, also in the journal Political Economy, where you actually um, looked at the effect of the FDA's regulation of of drugs, uh, pharmaceutical products, which everyone, um, except for a few of us, uh, think is a great thing because, of course, you want safe drugs, but you found that... As in the case of safety regulations, that the effects were much more of a mixed bag than they had first appeared. Yes, tell us what you found.
1: Well, uh, uh, again, you have to back up this, the, the particular regulation we were talking about in that case. We're talking about in that case is the requirement that there be a proof of efficacy before you can market a new drug, and, and that came into the, uh, the world in 1962. You'd already had about a 30-year uh, period in which the, uh, any new drug had to prove that it was safe, but now you had to prove that it was effective, which means that if you're going to make a, an advertising claim, you have to back it up with scientific evidence. And w- what that does, it, it has two effects, one good, one bad, it's just like, uh, uh, it, it's kind of kind of like auto safety regulation, that there's, there's the effect you're looking for, and then there's the unintended effect. The good effect, of course, is that uh, first of all, even in terms of safety, just by lengthening the testing periods to now include efficacy, uh, uh, you're going to catch some things that are uh, uh, before they're mass marketed that 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 might be unsafe. You're also going to catch stuff that doesn't work the way it might be claimed, and you're going to save people a money and b the cost of having done something that they later regret, that is taking a drug that doesn't work when they could have taken something that might not have worked as well as advertised but worked better than nothing. So there are going to be benefits. The cost, of course, is that every new drug that comes to market is going to have to spend a longer time being tested. And that means that if the drug ultimately turns out to be good, there's going to be a missed benefit. There's also going to be a... Uh, uh, effect on the market for research as you might think of it in the sense that you're now raising the cost of R&D by requiring this extra testing and that's going to reduce the number of drugs that enter the pipeline of
0: testing and that re- that increase in R&D cost isn't just that you have to spend more money on the proving that it e- that it's efficacious that it works you also have to now Delay the profitability right. of this drug, so. That's that, right. The payoff is going to be delayed. And, so and, and it the... turns
1: out that, 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 that those costs are the biggest, for, for the drug companies are the biggest costs. Uh, it, the process has wor- worked itself out so that it now takes a decade, ten years, plus a billion dollars, one billion, to bring any new drug to the market. That's the way the process has worked itself out. It a... is because intrinsically you have, to, you know, proving something like uh, the drug will work in the way that the FDA wishes you to generate that proof. Scientific double-blind tests, and, and, and then new tests if they don't like the first one. That that process is a very expensive process. So the delay itself is is is, is costly to the drug companies, but also to the to the users because. Stuff that's very, perfectly okay gets to market. It's not ten years after the otherwise would, but a good, say, four or five. So that's a long time. Uh, and, you know, it's like airbags. You're doing this for every single drug that comes to market, just like every single car has to have an airbag. This is true for every single day. You can't avoid that if you're going to regulate in this particular uh, way. And my finding was, you know, to, to cut to the chase, this kind of regulation kills more people than it saves. In the sense that the vast majority of stuff is good, that, 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 that drug companies pursue seriously is good. They don't want to market bad drugs per se, they may want to take a chance, but they don't want to market bad, bad drugs. Per se, they, they have market incentives. The market.
0: The market for hemlock is, is thin. That's
1: right. That's right. Uh, but the market for something that might work might not work, and you know there's a market for that. And, and then the, the drug company then has to balance the risks of uh, maybe uh, putting something on the market uh, too soon, or, or that that has side effects. majority of stuff that gets to the market is good, but it gets there ten years later. I mean, let's say five years later than, than it otherwise would. And in the meantime, people who could have benefited don't, and some of them die. That cost is overwhelming compared to the benefit, which is the reduction of uh, inefficacious drugs that get to the market, and in some cases unsafe drugs. That was the finding back in
0: 1973. And you also found... You also found that the rate of innovation of new drugs dropped dramatically, correct? Yes, yes, yes.
1: The the rate of innovation dropped uh, dramatically. But the biggest cost comes from the delay.
0: That's absolutely clear. And uh, how was that study received?
1: Again, with great hostility, great resistance. Again, by the establishment, the establishment, in this case the government, the And then the government, in all these cases, generates a coterie of uh, supporters, and you might think of them as supplicants, people who live off of the regulatory system. Uh, The large parts of the medical, academic medical establishment were hostile. Uh, The drug industry was ambivalent, to be sure. Again, you know, the industry uh, very often opposes these things at the beginning, but learns to live with it and in 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 this case they by the by the mid early to mid seventies had learned to live with this form of regulation, so they were ambivalent about uh, changing things very much uh, but again you know just like in the other uh there's the automobile safety case the it's the it's the it's the subsequent response by fellow academics and the world that i think is is what gives it some durability. And uh, after the initial hostility wore off, people started looking at the issue. Others, not me. Other people started looking at the same issue, different countries in different ways. And by and large, look, this point is now, I would say, part of the uh, conventional wisdom. It's embedded in legislation now. and, and. the FDA is not going up to Capitol Hill today and saying we should have an un, a regulation system unchanged from what we had in, in the early 1970s. There's No problem. We are the we are the agency which protects the mothers and, 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 and children from from harm and, and and don't don't ask us anything. That's not the world today. Uh, uh, they They clearly recognize that there is a problem, but they wish to defend the basic system so that, that the 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 uh the, the, it, 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 there has been regulatory change, but not very much fund the fundamental system that's in place uh, is now uh uh pretty much as secure as it was in nineteen seventy three it's bent it's more flexible. It's it Recognizes better. that there's a problem, but it hasn't changed in
0: any fundamental way. Yeah, the fundamental. Nor, nor is
1: it likely to.
0: Yeah, the fundamental system hasn't changed. But but you you, you did um, you did draw some blood there. Um, oh yeah yeah
1: no you, no no it's, it's, it, it, clearly there, there, there's a much more uh, in 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 the system as it was in place then uh, if if you got test results which didn't dot which which didn't. Generate the kind of results that the FDA uh, 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 expected from a, 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 a test that would result in an efficacious drug. You were gone completely. Now it's much more flexible. If you can show, you know, we didn't we didn't look for this, but uh, 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 women react better than men. The FDA will take that into account now in a way that it wouldn't have. Uh, or uh, we we have two two very important uh, uh, pieces of legislation that came after that recognized there was a problem. There's an orphan drug law, right? All right. So one of the effects of this kind of regulation is you're not going to spend a billion dollars on something that's going to 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 uh, to uh, benefit a thousand people. You'll never recover your costs. You now have a basically less regulated market for such drugs. You can get in faster, less kind of evidence, and so on and so forth. <laughs> the other thing that happened was uh, they, they uh, uh, there, there was a law in the early 90s which uh, allowed the industry, not allowed, it actually taxed the industry, to accelerate the last part of the process. The last part of the process was taking four or five years, then then, by itself uh, that that's just going through the records of existing trials and going through committees and so on and so forth uh, they they've knocked about a couple of years off the last part of the process by by basically taxing the industry that piece of legislation by the way is up for renewal theres some hostility to it because inevitably there have been cases where Even after 10 years, you put something on the market and there there are more bad effects than than benefits, and and that creates pressure to to increase regulation. So one response is, well, maybe uh, we should bad back those last two years. I think that would be a mistake, but there's there's, uh, now now going to be greater receptivity in Congress for that kind of thing. Uh, In any case, there there has been movement. There's also been what you might call homemade deregulation. So that the biggest example of this was the AIDS epidemic, which hit suddenly in the early 1980s. Uh, it, it was it was uh, 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 immediately led to to uh, diversion of resources into research for AIDS drugs, and then of course they start winding their way through the FDA process, and the FDA says you got to do a double-blind test on on uh, 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 terminal AIDS patients, yeah. right? What does that mean? You're going to give half of them a sugar pill and see how it works out? And they organized; those folks organized, and they they went to, to Washington and they said, "Look, for somebody who's got terminal AIDS, it's not enough to have what the FDA wants. You got to let us." you got to let us uh, uh, allow anything that's promising out there sooner and they they got their way they got their way but what what it does is it illustrates something general about the effects of regulation things which are going to be beneficial if they're delayed can kill people
0: yeah and sam you mentioned and
1: the unfortunate sto- the unfortunate thing about that episode is it kind of said you know the system is fundamentally flawed, but you're not going to get around it unless you organize politically, and that's kind of you know that's that's not uh, uh, you know that's not it's, it's understandable to an economist. To you and me, it's understandable that that's the way the political process is going to 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 work. But it, 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 if you if you if you did think of the FDA as just an agency which has no objective other than promoting the health and welfare of the, the citizenry, it's an awful message. It kind of says you're going to die unless you're part of an interest group that organizes to to uh, change the
0: process. It's yeah, just slightly depressing. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that the large companies uh, learned to live with it. Uh, one of the re- ways they, they learned to live with it is they built up this in house knowledge of how to cope with this regulatory regime. Oh,
1: yes asset of the American drug industry.
0: And so it keeps out, unfortunately, you know, one of the effects today, especially given the amount of innovation there is in in, uh, biotech, potential innovation, it keeps out small companies and it basically forces all drug development into these larger companies, ultimately, because there's no way a small company... I I wouldn't say
1: all, but the, 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 the common channel for it, for a drug to make it to the market is somebody's got a bright idea. They may, they may be, they may have, they may push the process up to the extent that they've raised money from venture capitalists, and then they start to burn it. That's called the burn rate. They're in this ten-year cycle, and every month they have no revenues and, and, and research expense. At some point in this cycle, they sell to a large drug company. Yeah. What are they selling? They're selling an idea. Accumulated test results, the large drug company does two things. It provides the capital to finish the testing process, but much more importantly, it provides guiding the thing through the washington uh, uh, labyrinth that yeah. is an enormous source of wealth to the large drug companies, and that's why they're ambivalent about about the system
0: and if we uh, if we and, got... and
1: in fact, probably on the whole support of yeah. it yeah.
0: Well, they also would claim that it, it makes the consumer feel comfortable about the the drug. I want you to speculate for a minute about a world without the FDA. Yes. Let You know, you said the regime's in place, that's the way it is, but let, let's imagine that the regulatory apparatus disappeared, let's let's dream, yes. and there's no FDA. Uh, what private mechanisms would there be for drug safety and efficacy, and uh, what do you think the consequences would be?
1: Well. There's others, but the first one you think about is the market response. I mean, the market wants to buy, basically, drugs that, that work. If, if you as a company get a reputation for not serving that demand, you're going to be gone. Oh, again, that's it. that takes time, and people get impatient, and there's always going. Always. We live in a world in which there's endemic risk. So there are always going to be drugs that occasionally come to market that... Don't work well. And at that point you, you lose the revenue stream that you expected. That's, that's a, you, that's the biggest cost. And you don't want to do that. Okay? So, so you want to, you want the revenue stream to continue and you want your reputation to be one where you mostly produce the vast majority, 90 plus, 9% plus good stuff. The, the other mechanism is the legal system. I mean, we have tort liability, and the, 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 that would have, in fact, some some argue that 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 the increase in the court's willingness to impose liability would have had approximately the same effect on on uh, uh, drug development as the FDA. I happen not to agree, but certainly it would have way it's evolved it would have gone in that direction. It will make you uh do what you might think of as defensive testing you'll want to establish a record that you 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 really went the extra mile because uh, down the road somebody's going to take you to court in a class action and in fact that happens anyway even with the fda 's system you occasionally get get uh, tort suits but that's another you can think of it as a market mechanism that would uh, that would provide incentives for safety, but I think it's less important than the the, the major one, which is uh, you don't get revenues from a drug which everybody understands is worthless. Or what, worse.
0: A, what about private certification? You think there would be some? Uh, uh,
1: uh, undoubtedly, I mean you have it in other, ca- in other cases. Well, I don't see why you wouldn't have it in the in the case of uh, in the case of drugs. I mean, it's not for us to say exactly how that uh, that certification process would work. But you have, you know, we have underwriters' laboratories which test appliances. You have uh, private uh, standard-setting agencies which uh, put their mark on 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 products. Uh,
0: My favorite example is kosher food.
1: Kosher, Uh, yes.
0: A lot of private competition among various rabbinic organizations to certify a product as kosher. The government doesn't have to do it. That's right. And we know the sellers have an incentive to try to cut corners at times to make more money and. Someone monitors it. It just doesn't happen to be the government. Uh, the government monitoring, which we all presume to be in our own self interest of course is often self interested in different ways. yeah well we're almost out of time could Could you close by saying um speculating on on why these regulations we've talked about today uh persist we've We've talked about uh two very depressing things uh two well intentioned sets of laws that are supposed to make us safer, healthier, and in fact have these unintended consequences, or per, maybe for some they are intended, but have these these seemingly perverse effects. Uh, why don't why don't we see them uh, fading away? We both agree that they're in place. The government's role in automobile safety regulation is likely to continue. The government's role in pharmaceutical regulation very much likely to continue. Uh, what? what keeps them going? Is it ignorance on the part of, of the average citizen or is it something more complicated?
1: Well, it's, it's what we like to call rational ignorance. Uh, I don't think that the large uh, body of voters, first of all, it's not clear they're going to be decisive in these issues. Uh, like in the AIDS case, you need interest groups to organize and put pressure on the, on the process. Or you need a very widely held view that things aren't working well and I don't think you have the latter in any of these cases and that's partly because of the way the world works uh, in the absence of regulation we get we get richer technology progresses and, and, and to the average citizen things are okay and and, and it's very easy for the, regula- the regulatory establishment to claim credit for it so on the whole Drug technology has been beneficial, and it marches on, and it it makes its little conquests here and there. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like that process is broken,
0: and it isn't. And in the
1: absence of the feeling that it's broken, you're not going to get certainly not from the mass of the population any great pressure to change things. And and, and in the case of automobiles, quite explicitly. What the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration does every year is it publishes a chart, and it says, here was the world before regulation. Here is the world after regulation. Look, it's gone down. But, of course, you and I know that's not the correct comparison. The correct comparison is not, did it go down? Absolutely. But did it go down relative to a world without regulation? That subtlety is... Almost necessarily going to be lost on the large mass of, uh, of uh, voters. Yeah, it's one of my And they're, favorites. Not going to, they're not going to sense that there's, you know, there's a market mechanism that would have produced that anyway. And, yeah. and you know, why do we need regulators? They're superfluous at best and the meddlesome and costly at worst. They're not going to. They look. Uh, cars are getting better. They're getting safer, and and uh, there's no problem. And and the people in Washington can say yes, we told you so, and we
0: delivered. Yeah, my favorite example—that's the fifty-five mile an hour speed limit. If you look at fatalities after the law was put in place, they fall steadily. Of course, yes. they fell steadily before it was put of in place. Of course, and almost yes. exactly yes. the same rate. Yes, it uh, doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. It it might have had some marginal impact, but surely the wrong thing is to look at the. Uh, just uh, the after-the-law facts. Yes, yes. This uh, is what
1: we call counterfactual analysis. Yeah. Most of the people listening don't, don't know what that word even means. So yeah. so, so, so uh, uh, how can you expect the large mass of voters to conduct the kind of analysis that we do and carefully reflect that in, in their voting decisions? They're not going to vote that way. They're going to vote on is the world a good world or a bad world? You know, do I think... What is the question they ask? Do you think the country's moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? It's only, it's only a very gross filter like that that's going to affect the average person. Yeah. And then you get the industry becomes wrapped up in the regulation, and they don't want to change anything. So, absent the crisis, you're not going to get big
0: change. Yeah, that, that latter effect, the, uh, the role of, I think you called it the supplicants and the, uh, the hangers on, the, the people who profit. Uh, from these regulations uh, even if they're not effective is, is a very powerful interest group and they do pay a lot of attention
1: but I think more important is the industry itself in the sense that, that, that they, they don't perceive that there's a large payoff to organizing, to, to putting themselves at risk to, to getting bad publicity which inevitably this is going to be produced by, by, uh, uh, to, to change things in, in Washington that's, that's what allows the Washington hangers on to succeed uh, unmolested and they contribute to it of course they contribute to it well, there's, there's what you call the, the temporary government and the permanent government <laughs> <laughs> the permanent government being the, the people we're talking about the, the, the bureaucracy in Washington whose perpetuation depends
0: on this kind of regulation well Sam I salute you for your uh, efforts to uh, dispel the ignorance that <laughs> rational or not does persist and I, and I do think uh Your work and and the work of others that you've inspired and the rest of our profession has had an effect. I like to think it has anyway. My guest today has been Sam Peltzman, the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Graduate School of Business. Now on to your emails. Josh Knox wrote in about an early podcast we did with Mike Munger on scalping and the idea of opportunity cost. Mike posed the following puzzle. Suppose you want to go to a concert, but it's sold out. Ah, oh, you're so disappointed. You really wanted to go. But as you wander away from the box office, crushed, a scalper shows up. And he's got tickets, but they're a little expensive, for $1,000 apiece. You think, 1000 bucks. I mean, I wanted to go to the concert, but not for 1000 So you refuse. It's too expensive. But now as you walk away, you look down on the ground, and you find a ticket to the concert. You're thrilled you're going. And you're clutching that ticket in your hand. And someone comes up to you and says, hey, you've got a ticket to the concert. I'll give you $1,000 for it. What would you do? And Josh was interested in this experiment, and he said, I began asking my friends what they'd do if they found the concert tickets after refusing to purchase the same tickets from a scalper. They all said they'd keep the tickets and go to the concert. Now, I think a lot of people would do that, Josh, which appears to be puzzling. Going to the concert costs $1,000 in both situations, yet many people who would refuse to pay $1,000 in cash for the tickets to the scalper are happy to re- to give up the $1,000 they could get from selling the ticket. So in both cases, it costs $1,000, but in one case they go, in the other case they don't. It seems to be irrational. Now Josh continues, and he tries to explain this. He writes, Perhaps some of this phenomenon comes from a blindness to opportunity cost, and perhaps some of it is due to the intrinsic value of being able to go to a concert at zero price as if the tickets were a gift of destiny. But money or tickets, none of my friends wanted to deal with a scalper. I was wondering how much you thought the negative connotations of a scalper play into this. Scalper is not a nice word, and scalpers are rarely considered upstanding citizens. In dealing with them, there's a risk of fraud. Could the fear of fraud be the rational explanation for the behavior? It's an excellent point, Josh. I, th- I think it has something to do with it. Some of these seemingly irrational behaviors come from our un- they come from our unfamiliarity with the experience. Is this going to work out okay? Can I get arrested? Am I going to get cheated? What about fraud? We can see this phenomenon at work with eBay and StubHub and other services which allow scalping, but with much less uncertainty than when you're up. On street corner with a stranger with a ticket you're not quite sure is going to be a real ticket Uh, you're not quite sure what's going to happen ask your friends if they'd keep the tickets or sell them on eBay or StubHub for $1,000 if they found the ticket now again there are people who don't have familiarity with eBay or StubHub and might think oh that's kind of weird I don't know how that's going to work out am I really going to collect the money and that's going to probably encourage them to keep the ticket rather than resell it but my guess is that If you took people who had experience with eBay or StubHub with auction uh, experiences on the web, they'd be much more likely to sell the ticket they found rather than use it uh, and go to the concert and give up that $1,000. By the way, I had an interesting experience with this the other day. My wife and I were in New York, and we wanted to see Wicked, which is the musical version of uh, the prequel to The Wizard of Oz. It's a very uh, uh, clever show, and I got online. The, tickets, the show was sold out, so I got online, and I found a reseller of tickets, a StubHub-like place that was that had tickets for the, the show we wanted to go to. But they were well above face value, and of course, I didn't know much about the reseller, so I, but I bought them. I really wanted to go. The seller was in Texas. So I'm in Maryland on my way to New York buying a ticket from somebody in Texas, and there's no way I can get the tickets in time mailed to me. So he says, oh, it's no problem. Uh, I'll send you a PDF file that has a picture of the tickets. Just send me your credit card number. So how scary is that? He's got my credit card, and what do I have? I have a picture of the tickets, not the tickets. You know, I want him to leave them at the window at the box office for me. He's sending me a photograph, essentially, of the tickets in a PDF file uh, via email. So I said, um, uh, how's that going to work? And he said, oh, it's simple. He said, you print out the PDF, and there's a barcode on it, and when you get to the theater, they'll scan the barcode. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. So I trusted him, uh, as we do many times in these kind of situations. He had a, this reseller had a big website. Uh, they'd obviously put a lot of resources in it, and I assumed that they wouldn't want those resources to disappear. Uh, I found it hard to believe they could persist in cheating people if, if as a not seemingly ongoing operation. It looked legitimate, so I did the transaction. So I get to the theater with my wife and clutching the uh, folded-up uh, printout of the PDF with the barcode of the tickets. And there's this huge crush of people filing in, and the woman in front of me turns around and catches my eye, and she says, oh – Oh, you've got those PDF tickets too. Oh, I'm so relieved. I, you know, I'm looking around. Everybody's got real tickets. I'm the only one with this this goofy PDF file printed out with a barcode. Now I'm fine. Now she said. I said, Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're both of us are going to get taken to the cleaners with these fake PDF tickets. But it worked out fine. Uh, the person scanned them just like I'd been promised, and uh, we got into the show, which was awesome, by the way. Incredibly clever and well done. I want to thank Josh Knox for his letter. Uh, I'd like to hear from you. If you have comments you'd like me to read on the air, please email me at mail at econtalk.org, mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Talk to you on Monday.